If you turn over to Philippians chapter 4, if you look at the Philippians chapter 4, we've been kind of working our way through this, and uh, we've talked a little bit about uh, some stability that, that we all need in our lives. And, and one of the, the ways that uh, you can obtain this stability in your spiritual life, we looked at verses 2 and 3 of uh, chapter 4, and we talked about cultivating a harmony through love. In other words, just having a biblical love for one another as the body of Christ. And, and he mentions there are these two women who were having a problem, a disagreement of some sorts. It wasn't even probably anything that serious that they were disagreeing on, but it was serious enough for Paul to write their name in the letter. And uh, he wanted to encourage them to make reconciliation with each other and work this out. And he talked about an individual, uh, in, in my text it says, true companion, um, which was probably um, somebody's proper name. And uh, uh, he calls on this individual to help these women who labored with him. Um, and he really wants them to cultivate this harmony through loving one another. And then in verse 4, and that's the first thing, if we can do that, if we can cultivate in our lives a love for one another, a biblical love for brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, it's just you have a, a form of stability in your life that you don't have otherwise. And the second thing he points out in verse 4 was rejoice in the Lord always again. I say rejoice. And we talked about this last week. And we talked about this is actually a command. He's commanding us to rejoice. And that's a hard thing to do. Have you ever walked up to somebody and just looked at them and said, rejoice when they're down? You know, that's, that's a hard thing to command somebody to do. But you notice he doesn't just say rejoice. He says rejoice what? In the Lord. And see, that makes all the difference in the world. Because... Our stability, and our spiritual stability specifically, is really controlled by how we think about God. What do we think about God? Who do we think God is? How do we think, what do we think about His attributes? What do we think about His personality, His, his makeup? Um, you know, some of us were, were raised in, in certain faiths that taught us that God is angry. God is an angry God, and you know He wants His vengeance, His pound of flesh, that kind of a thing. So you better not cross Him. And so you grow up in all those. Whether maybe some of you grew up in a, in a very uh, kind of a, from a very liberal background, where God is just ever all love. It doesn't matter what you do or whatever. You can never displease God. So you know your your life, your morality is irrelevant because God will still love you because God is love. And you come from those two different perspectives. And it kind of skews your view of God, of who God really is. And so when, we, when Paul says here, rejoice in the Lord always, it's, it's a command and he wants us to know that, you know, more than anything else, you should have a burning in your heart. Because you know the, the King of Kings, the Savior. You know that he's died for you, he's given his life for you. And there should be a burning in your heart. In Luke 24, I think it's in verse 27, it says that as they were traveling along the road to Emmaus there, uh, Jesus was talking with two of his disciples. And as they were traveling, Christ met them and he explained to them all these things, it says, concerning himself. And later in that text, it says, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, here's what they said, listen to this, were not our hearts burning within us? while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining 
the Scriptures to us. Their hearts were burning with joy. They didn't even know why at that point. Because of the presence of the Lord there with them. That's what should be burning in our heart. We should have a joy burning its, its way through our heart every day. And it's not based on our circumstances. It's based on who God is. And if we can just get that through our head, boy, it makes life a lot more stable when you're trying to live out your Christian walk. If your Christian stability is based on your circumstances, you're in for a roller coaster ride. You really are. And so those two things he points out, a love for one another, maintaining that spirit of joy, and we talked about that last week. Well, I want to look at verse 5 today because... He lists a, a third thing here. And he says, let your gentleness be known to all men. Let your gentleness be known to all men. I just want to focus on that, that little kind of phrase there. Let your forbearing spirit, some verses say, uh, some translations, be known to all men. What is forbearance? What does that mean? Well, this word in the original language is very difficult uh, to define. It's, it's difficult to define for a myriad of ways because you look at every commentary and they all kind of translated a different thing. Contentment, gentleness, generosity, goodwill toward others, all sorts of different things. Um, one commentator translated, and I think this is the best translation, he says, graciousness. Let your graciousness be made known to all men. Because that's kind of a, a Christian, there's a kind of a Christian emphasis in that word there of graciousness. So, Forbearance includes another important element, obviously, humility. And so it has the idea of, of humble graciousness. Humility and graciousness will help us uh, keep a stable hand on things. Um, and I think that's important for a variety of reasons, but, but most of all, it's important because God wants us to live a life that's pleasing to Him every day. And the way to do that is to be stable in our spiritual life. And see, some, some people say that, well, that just means you let people walk all over you. No, that's not what he's talking about. That's not what he's talking about at all. Um, I think the humble Christian, the Christian who is gracious, is the person who was mistreated. They were misjudged. Maybe they were misrepresented. Um, maybe they even had their reputation ruined. But you know what? Their attitude is, you know what? I'm going to trust in God and I'm not going to hold a grudge against that person. I mean, that's, that's something the Spirit has to do. See, a person that has humble graciousness in their life doesn't demand their rights. They realize they don't have any. And you know what? You stop and you think God's grace to us was manifested in the very same way. Um, you think of what Christ went through Mankind abused him, they maligned him, they beat his body to it was almost unrecognizable. Yet all along he deserved none of that. See, if that were to happen to you or I, we would deserve it because we're sinners. But Christ was a sinless Lamb of God. And they treated this sinless Lamb of God as if he had committed every sin by everyone who would ever believe in his name yet not ever having committed even one sin. Talk about being mistreated. And his humility and his graciousness 
allowed him to follow through with the Father's plan. And yet, he still reached out. While we were yet sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for us. He reached out to us, even though we weren't worth. When we look at it, you know, this, this, there's no way we could live up to, to our calling. But you know what? In Christ, all things are possible. And God wants us to understand that when He calls us to be His own, when He calls us to be a, a, a brother or sister in Christ, a child of His, that it costs somebody something. And a lot of times we think of, well, grace, you know, it's free, it's a free gift. We, we teach that all the time. When you share the, the salvation plan with the gospel plan with somebody, how many times do you say it's just a free gift? It's a free gift. All you have to do is take it. And that's fine because it is a free gift. But it wasn't really free. It doesn't cost us anything. It's kind of like the, the slogan that you hear, you know, freedom isn't free. That's so true. Freedom isn't free. I know several people who've lost limbs or been affected somehow by this, this war. And you know what? We're the benefits of that. But no, no way is it free. And when God sent His Son to die on a cross, you know, it cost Him His own Son. It's not like He had five more up there to choose from. No, that was His only begotten Son, the Bible says. And you stop and you think about it. You know, maybe you had something in your life that it was one of a kind thing. Maybe it was something that you just treasured greatly and you were called to give it up or maybe someone took it from you. How did you feel? I remember when I was growing up, my sister took me over to, to, to Europe when I was like 12 and we grew up in the Catholic Church and I remember going to, to Rome and Vatican City and all that, and I remember having this little St. Christopher medal. I bought it in the gift shop there. My sister bought it for me. And I remember uh, one of the guys over there blessed it, and boy, I just you know, wore that thing all the time. And I remember one day we were up in the woods playing, my friend and I, and I got home that night, and I was taking a shower or something, and I realized it was gone. I mean, talk about a sick feeling. In my stomach, I thought, whoa, whoa, what I, you know, I looked all over the house. It was dark, so I couldn't go outside. I had to wait till the next day. I mean, I looked for weeks for this thing. Weeks. And, I mean, even into my teenage years, I remember walking up this path where I think I probably fell off my neck somewhere. Still, I mean, this is like years later. Still looking down thinking, gosh, what if I saw that little glimmer when I found this thing? Then I could, I could, I could put it. The you know, my mind would be at ease. I finally got this thing back. Why? Because it was special to me. It didn't have any power in and of itself or anything, but it was, it was a special little thing that you know meant a lot. It would still mean a lot to me, not religiously, but just as an heirloom that, that I got. Um, you know, it was, it was kind of a, a neat thing. But you know what? That's the kind of idea when, when it says that God gave His only Son. It was very special to him. And so when we, we stop and we look at what it means here to, to be gracious, to be humble, we have to stop and we have to look and model our gentleness, our humility after the Lord. The humble Christian, when they're done wrong, they don't retaliate. That's just the way it is. Now, beloved, I know that 
I mean, I've done my share of retaliating, and I'm sure you have too, because that's the way kind of people we are. You know, I'm sure you've demanded your rights as I've demanded my rights on occasion. Probably most of the time. <laughs> but you know what? It doesn't make it right. It doesn't mean that, okay, well, it's okay, you know. Uh, we should still model our behavior after Christ. Now, we say that, and then we stop and we look at our secular world in which we live. And it's totally the opposite. I mean, if you stop and you just think for a second, you know, if, if something makes you feel good, you know what, uh, you can do it. It doesn't matter. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, you know, it's okay. Uh, that's the mentality that we have today. Um, and, and I think that a lot of times we deceive ourselves and we think, you know what, my sin doesn't hurt anyone. After all, you know, my sin is paid for. And we almost presume on God. But you know what? The Bible says that sin always ends up hurting somebody. Always. It says your sin will always find you out. And I think that sometimes we forget that. Because we live in an age of grace. We live in a... Uh, the, the, the church age is, is filled with grace. God is a very gracious God. He's not an angry God up there waiting for you to do something wrong so a big hammer can come down and just smash you like a little bug. That's not the kind of God that we serve. We serve a God who stretched his arm out wide and died on a cross so that we could have that new life that the Bible talks about. But today in, in, our, in our society and in the world in which we live, there's a lot of psychological, I call it babble, for, for lack of a better term. Because... A lot of times, we don't want to call sin, sin, and all this, you know, it's, it's always kind of mixed up with all these, these other psychology and psychiatry and all that, and those are valid sciences. I'm not, uh, you know, putting them down, but when it comes to the spirituality of somebody, they offer little help. There's one individual, his name's Robert Cole, I read this in a book, <clears throat> and basically he was a pretty well-known psychiatrist, He's an MD and very esteemed in, in our country. He actually, in 1973, received the Pulitzer Prize, um, written 36 books, he authored 600 journal articles. I mean, this is a guy, he, he basically was a professor at psychiatry and medical humanities at Harvard Medical School. I mean, you know, you can't get any higher than that. And he went to an interview, and he doesn't claim to be a Christian. He has nothing to do with Christianity or whatever. Um, and it was just kind of an interesting interview, and I thought I'd share this with you because a lot of times, you know, when it comes to our own life and stability, and uh, as soon as there's some instability, where do we look? You know, we look to counseling, get some kind of counseling. We've got to do this, we've got to do that. Well, a lot of times, uh, depending on what kind of counseling you're getting, that may be a good thing or it may not. And this, this, psych, this psychiatrist, he, he basically went through this interview, and in one part of the interview, the interviewer asked him, you know, why aren't you a surgeon? Why didn't you become a surgeon? I mean, you're an MD of psychiatry. Why didn't you become a surgeon? And his answer was this, I'm sloppy. Not a great quality for a surgeon. Here's what he said. When you get a combination of a befuddled slob who doesn't have the necessary toughness and is a little mixed up himself, well, then you've got a psychiatrist. 
Do you believe this? A befuddled, mixed-up slob with no toughness is a psychiatrist. The question is, a mixed-up psychiatrist? And his answer, of course. Another question. Is it futile then to, to search for ultimate answers in psychiatry or psychology? And he answers, he says, the futility is in searching for ultimate answers in the entire secular culture. Psychology happens to be a temporary secular religion. How long will it last? 50 years. Secular religions come and go. Today it's psychology. Tomorrow it will be weight reduction, cholesterol, or getting to the moon or Mars, whatever. Who knows what our culture will be preoccupied with next. But none of this is going to give us answers to the moral, spiritual questions that we ultimately hunger for. Psychology isn't equipped to answer those questions. Psychology gives us some information about the mind, but the mind is not the soul. Ask him another question. Psychology then can help a person's mental health? Can it help a person's mental health? Here's what he said. We shouldn't even use words like mental health. The question is not, what is mental health? Or do you have mental health? The question is, what do you do with your life? You know, like this guy. Question, but even ministers today are becoming psychologists. He says, this is pragmatism. And they ask him another question. Pastoral counseling is a term for it. And he says, it's pragmatism. My mother was dying here, and he gives this illustration, in Massachusetts General Hospital. A minister came in to see her, and he wanted to negotiate her through the stages of dying. All she wanted was him to pray for her. She already knew she was dying. He wanted to talk about anger and denial. But she wasn't angry, and she wasn't denying it. She knew she was dying. And all she wanted to do was to have this pastor pray for her. They asked him another question. Is this all part of the same syndrome? We all want to worship the expert, the secular expert. He goes, who are the secular experts anyway? What do psychologists and psychiatrists know about the Christian life? What can they tell us? I mean, talking about a guy that's a little mixed up, very well esteemed in his field. But he's smart enough to realize that there's certain boundaries. And my point is this, sometimes when the world is closing in on us, and as believers, we're, we're kind of maybe backed against the wall. You know, the person we need to go to is God. God, go to God first. And you know why I, I bring that out is because this verse says, let your gentleness, let your humility, let your forbearance be made known to all men. Forbearance isn't the kind of mentality that says, well, you know what, I got this problem and that's just it and that's the way I am. You know, I just need to love myself more. This one guy, Dr. Paul Brownback, observed that many of today's so-called Christian books contain more about self-love than they do about the scriptures. And that's true. See, in contrast to loving ourselves and, and having that kind of mentality, Scripture says that we're to be humble, we're to be unselfish. That's what he says in, in Philippians 2, 3 to 4. We've already gone through that. We're to, we're to love those who mistreat us, Matthew 5. 
We're to extend, extend mercy toward those who stumble repeatedly in 1 Peter 4.8. See, that's what enables Paul to say down, if you just look down in Philippians 4 verse 11, it enables Paul to say, not that I can speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be what? Content. To be content. Paul was content because of his forbearing spirit, not because of his circumstances. I mean, this poor guy was writing from prison. But some believers, they'll take in all they hear and they see and they filter it kind of in their minds to see if it wounds them in any way. And if it does, then they're a victim of this and you know the, the ball begins to roll. And when you begin to realize, you know what? I'm to be humble before the Lord. I'm, I'm not to be all about myself. To let this gentleness be made known to all men. That's the contentment. It has generosity in mind. But more importantly, it has the idea of, of humbleness, graciousness. And I guarantee you, if, if we have that, just that attribute alone, that idea that we're going to look out for the interests of others more than we look out for the interests of ourselves, sailing is going to be a lot smoother in our lives. So he wants us to know that. Let this gentleness be made known to all men. Next thing he shares, even when they mistreat you. Next thing he shares in verse, the end of verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6. He says, the Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. You know, not only do we have stability in our life if we have a love for one another and an attitude that rejoices in the Lord, not in our circumstances, and if we're humble before other people, but also... I think another aspect of this is that we have to rest on the confident, our, our, our faith in, a, in, in the Lord. We have to have confidence in the Lord. That's why he says that the Lord is near. He's, he's kind of encouraging them. He's comforting them. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. That, that word there speaks of the presence of the Lord. When he says the Lord is at hand or the Lord is near, it can refer to two things. It can refer to space, or it can refer to time. In other words, I could say this, this, this microphone right here is near to me right now. What am I saying? In, in space, it's, it's near to me. But I could say Monday's nearer than Wednesday. What am I talking about? I'm talking about time. Well, what's he talking about here? If he was referring to chronological nearness, if he's talking about time, it might be a reference to the Lord's return. Could he be telling the Philippians, hey, the Lord's coming back pretty soon. After all, he did say that our citizenship is in heaven in verses three, chapter 320, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Could be. Christ's return certainly would be reason for the believers not to be anxious. I mean, can you imagine if, if Jesus said he was going to come back tomorrow? 
Think of all the things that you can just check out. Just don't even worry about your little checklist. I mean, wouldn't that be an incredible thing if God just gave you a word somehow and said, you know what, tomorrow at noon, I'm coming back for my church. What would you do between now and noon? To realize that tomorrow at noon, you're not even going to be here anymore. There's not going to be any more aches or pains. You're going to have a glorified body. You're going to be in the presence of the Lord just like that. What would you do? What would you spend the next 24 hours doing? I don't think you'd go home and wax your car. I mean, you know, stop and think about it. I don't think you'd even go home and clean your house. Unless you're paranoid what people would find when you weren't there because you're gone. You know, maybe you're that kind of personality. I don't know. You know the kind of person, you know, when you hire a, a person to come in and clean your house. I tried this once. What I ended up doing? I ended up cleaning the house before the cleaner person got there. You know, that's just my personality, I guess. But it kind of puts things in perspective. Is he talking about that? It seems a little impractical since Christ didn't return. And if he's speaking under the holy inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these people didn't see Christ return in their time. So I don't think he's talking about a, a time thing here. He might have been saying that believers would see the Lord soon because life is so brief. So there's one way, two options, but either the Lord's coming back for us in the rapture as the church. That's what the Bible says when when the fullness of times comes, he comes back for his church, and the church will be taken up off the earth. That's one way to go meet the Lord. The other way, if you're a believer, is to die. And that's what James talks about. Our, our lives here are brief. They're like a vapor. Both of those could be part of what he's saying. But I think the, the spatial nearness... The idea that God is near, like that microphone is near to me, is kind of the best understanding here. Psalm 119, 151, the Lord encompasses us with his presence, it says. Do you know that when you have a thought, the Lord is near enough to already know what it is? When you pray, the Lord is near enough to hear it. When you need his strength and his power, he's near enough to you as a believer to provide it. In fact, the Bible says that he lives in us. He's the source of our spiritual life. Um, so he says, the Lord is near, therefore, don't be anxious about anything. How would your day change if... Jesus signed on with you in the morning after breakfast and said, you know what, I'm just going to ride with you today. I'm going to be with you. Throughout the whole day, I'm going to be right here. Anything you need, you just ask. You think you'd start worrying about things? You think you'd, you'd spend the whole day with Jesus just worrying about your life and worrying what's going on and worrying about this and worrying about that? I'd probably say no. Why? Because he's the source of your life. Everything you have is directly from him. There'd be no reason to worry. See, in an awareness of God's presence keeps us 
from this, this anxiousness that causes so many problems, causes so much instability in our lives. And I think that we need to be reminded of that. It's, it's kind of a, uh, um, it's one of those things sometimes that's hard to grasp. But God really wants us to, to understand that He is near with us. He's not some far-off God like a lot of religions have, you know, that you have to appease somehow. No, God is right there with us every day. Turn over to the book of Habakkuk. Toward the end of the New Testament there. If you have a problem finding it, just look in your table contents in the beginning of your Bible. Habakkuk. It's kind of an interesting situation here. Um, because I think knowing the Lord is near is meaningful only if you know the Lord. That's an important point. Uh, if we know God, then we have spiritual stability and it's in, in our view because God is the one who's in control. Well, the prophet Habakkuk kind of illustrates the importance of knowing God. Look at chapter 1, just there in, in verse 2. Now, he had a burden on his heart. It says that in verse 1. It says, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. See, strife and injustice, all this stuff has filled the land of Judah. And Habakkuk wanted to know why God wasn't doing anything about it. You know, you can look around at America, at our nation today, and say, God, why aren't you doing anything about all the injustice that we see? All the lawlessness and the wickedness. Why aren't you doing anything about it? Well, God responds to Habakkuk. Habakkuk goes on there. He says, Why do you show me iniquity and, and cause me trouble and plundering and violence before me? There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless. Injustice never goes forth. And the, for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. And God says, Okay, are you done now? Let me tell you something, Habakkuk. And look at what he says. Look among the nations and watch. In other words, get ready, Habakkuk, because you're going to see uh, you know, some shock and awe here. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe, though it were told to you. Verse 6, for indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and, naff and, and uh, hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. He goes on. He says, they are terrible. They're dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from the altar, comes from afar, <laughs> and fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. 
They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes and, scor and are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. What's interesting to me is that God basically tells Habakkuk that he's going to raise up these people. He says, then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing his, uh, this power to his God. See, God was going to use a pagan nation to punish his own people. Well, how did this affect Habakkuk? Turn over to chapter 3. Let's skip over that stuff. Turn over to chapter 3 and look at verse 16. This is Habakkuk's response to basically this judgment that's going to come up from this pagan nation against his people. He says, when I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the days of trouble when he comes up to the people. He will invade them with his troops. You notice there that his organs were shaking. His lips were quivering and trembling. His bones were aching. Well, what happened here? Habakkuk was responding really to this judgment that was going to be raised up, he was anxious. He began to, to, to really get nervous about this whole thing. He began to realize that, well, what, what's going on here, God? And you know what? He really forgot his knowledge of who God is. That was his response to that. But look at what he does immediately back in verse chapter 1, verse 12. Because as soon as he hears this, all that stuff happens to him. His lips quiver, his bones ache, he's anxious. That's what happens when you get anxious. That's what happens when you worry. That's why, you know, you, you pop the, the Rolaids or whatever it is, you know, to help your stomach condition because you're worrying about everything. You're anxious about everything. Look at what Habakkuk says in verse 12 of chapter 1. He begins to remind himself who God is. First of all, he's eternal. He says... Are you not from everlasting? Simply means God's eternal. He's before, after, above. He's independent of time. He he's transcends time. Begin to realize that, you know what, this may not be out of God's plan. God doesn't have to react to this. He, he's eternal. He sees all this. He also says he's, he's self-existent. He calls him, O Lord, which is a, a reference to Yahweh. I am tells us of God's self-existence and perfect, undisturbed tranquility. He's holy, he says, the most holy one. Verse 12, which indicates God is perfect and must deal with sin somehow. Look at verse 13. He says, you are a purer eyes than to, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness talks about his holiness. Verse 12, he talks about the aspect that he's faithful. We will not die, he says. He affirms God's care for them. 
verse 12, he also talks about God being almighty. Thou, O Lord, hast appointed them to judge. In other words, God, I don't know why you're using this wicked pagan nation, the Chaldeans, but go ahead if that's your plan. Perhaps Habakkuk was thinking, everything I know about you, Lord, tells me to stop worrying about this problem. <laughs> I don't understand it, but you know what? I don't need to. I think sometimes our minds are too small for the plan of God. Sometimes we can't comprehend that. His faith was in God. His faith was uh, in a righteous God. The end of chapter, or chapter 2, verse 4, at the end there, he says, but the just shall live by what? By faith. That's what it comes down to. That's what it comes down for you and I every day. In chapter 3, 17 to 19, he says, the Lord is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet. and makes me walk on high places. What he's saying there, if all the normal things of life I depend on suddenly stop, I still place my hope in God. He'll give me the ability to walk through whatever may come around the corner. That's why Paul, back to Philippians, says, be anxious for nothing. There's no sense in sitting around worrying about things you cannot control. And when we're fretting and when we're worrying, you know what it's doing? It's, it's indicating a clear lack of trust in God and in His providence for us. And we all do it. We all fall into that, that mode of worrying about this or worrying about that or worrying about the kids or the grandkids or family members. See, either you've created another God who can't help you <laughs> in your own mind, or else you believe God could help you, but he won't. Which means, if you have that idea, then you're really questioning his own integrity. You're questioning his word. That's why Psalm 1-2 says, So delight in the Lord and meditate on his word. Know who he is. Know how he acts. Know what he does. Know what his word says. Then you can say, you know what? I know the Lord is near. The Lord is near me. I'm not going to worry about these things. It's not worth it. Let's just close this part of our, our, our service before we come to our communion time. If somebody can go down and let the children know that we're, we're going to have communion time. Let's just bow in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that stability in our life does depend on how we look at these different aspects of the Christian walk, whether it's having a love for one another or, or fulfilling the command to rejoice in you, Lord, or even understanding you in, in a clearer way understanding what you want for us every day and, and Lord, yielding to you out of humility. Understanding the concept that, that, God, you are near to us. Your son clearly said in, his, in the Gospels, Lord, that we're not to be anxious about our life, about what we should eat, about what we should drink, 
concerning our body, what should we, we should put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? He went on to say and encourage us to look at the birds of the air. They don't sow any seed. They don't gather into barns. They don't reap. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He's faithful to them. Aren't we, as part of this creation, of much more value than they? Then he asked the question, which of you by being anxious or worrying can add a single cubit to your lifespan? Why are you anxious about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil, they don't spin. And even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so creates the grass of the field, and which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying what we shall eat, or what we shall drink, or what we shall clothe ourselves with. For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, but your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And you know what? All these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious for tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Christ is teaching us, beloved, in that passage to know and trust God because that's the key to spiritual stability. Father, we thank you that we can trust you, that you're a God who cares for us in every way, every day, whether we're sleeping, whether we're awake, Lord, your, your heart's desire is to provide for our needs. Lord, we thank you that you provided for our biggest need, our need of a Savior. And you've given that provision through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we begin to prepare our hearts for our communion time this morning, I'm just going to sing a couple simple songs. And If anybody here this morning would want to share something, maybe a verse or maybe just an encouraging word. Let's pray that our hearts would be open to that, that we'd be willing to uh, take that step of faith and, and speak out. Father, I just thank you for our time this morning. pray you bless this word to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.